Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Eric LeMay, a host on New Books in Literature, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, I interview Kimberly Johnson and Stephen Jenkinson about their new book, Reckoning. Reckoning is an encounter, not only of two people trying to make sense of how to be human and humane in what they call our troubled times, but also how to live in a world that's larger than us, a world that has its own designs and aims and needs which surpass us and, if we don't attend to them, surprise us. Death comes to us whether we're ready or not. Gods and ancestors appear whether we recognize them or not. And, amid it all, sometimes we find ourselves alongside a companion who's willing to reckon with these larger truths, even as we're undone, even as our hearts break. That's the encounter of reckoning, one Johnson and Jenkinson invite us to join. Stephen Jenkinson is the author of six books. He is a worker, author, storyteller, cultural activist, and co-founder of the Orphan Wisdom School with his wife, Natalie Roy. He is also the subject of the feature-length documentary film Grief Walker, a portrait of his work with dying people, and Lost Nation Road, a shorter documentary on the crafting of the Knights of Grief and Mystery Tours, which he undertakes with his band and collaborator Gregory Hoskins. Kimberly Johnson is the author of multiple books, including Call of the Wild, How We Heal Trauma, Awaken Our Own Power, and Use It for Good, and the early mothering classic, The Fourth Trimester, Healing Your Body, Balancing Your Emotions, and Restoring Your Vitality, published in seven languages around the world. Her work has been featured on the Goop podcast, The New York Times, Forbes, Vogue, New York Magazine's The Cut, Harper's Bazaar, Today.com, and many more. She is the host of the Sex, Birth, Trauma podcast. Here is my conversation with Stephen Jenkinson and Kimberly Johnson. Stephen Jenkinson and Kimberly Johnson, welcome to the New Books Network. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, I'm so glad to have you here. And um, we're going to be ostensibly talking about your collaborative project, Reckoning. Um, but I understand that that's not the the end of the collaboration, um, that you two have been on tour about the book, and there's, there's some teaching that you might do in the future. Um, and so I would like to invite in uh, whatever you would want to say about that work as well. But I was I was hoping to start. I mean, one of the things that I've seen in in Stephen's work and then in the work that that you two have given us, um, it's just this this crucial role of memory 
and what memory does um, and how necessary it is to, to literally remember if we're going to make anything out of it at all, if we're going to be able to, to keep our past with us and figure out a way with it from the f- for the future. And, and so I'm wondering if, if you'd be willing to share just, you know, the nature of this first encounter, because I heard that first podcast when it came out, um, and it was, to use a word that comes up uh, in the book, detonating um, for the listeners, I think, as, as well as for Kimberly. So I, I'm just wondering if you'd share with us not just the, the origin of the project, um, but how you're remembering it now. We're about two years out from that initial moment. And I'm just curious that as you, as you both put that back together and remember it, what's coming to light for you or, or what remains in the shadows? Kimberly, why don't you take that one? You're, you're good at this part of things. Okay. Well, Eric, I know that you told me that you had listened to that first podcast. And if you can believe it, it was only a year ago. Wait. It was only last year, August of 2021. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that just kind of shows how time has been um, these last couple of years. And I love that you started with memory because... So I I came to this project, well, it wasn't a project to begin with. I just came to a conversation that someone recommended that I have at a time that I was very bereft about the fracturing of all of the communities that I was a part of and things that I had called communities that I came to understand might have not been communities. And those were breathwork, yoga, uh, white, the white wellness world. Uh, I'm a somatic experiencing trauma resolution practitioner, the trauma world. And just seeing all of these places that I wouldn't have ever imagined get so extremely polarized and also how quickly people siloed themselves and were unwilling to interact even with vastly different opinions as if different opinions or different points of view made it impossible to speak with one another. Coming out of yoga, uh, there was also a lot of that first conversation pulled a lot of rugs out from underneath me of unconscious worldviews that I didn't realize that I had and that I just came to recognize were very segued with white Anglos, Anglo-Saxon, North America worldviews, things like redemptive endings that, um, that there's always, you know, you just keep washing away your past so that you can be more and more present so that you can be your best self, your most authentic self, which just kind of goes right along with be all you can be. And so for me, before I encountered Stephen Jenkinson, memory was not important. In fact, it's it's part of the yoga philosophy. There's a word for it, smriti. And it was the one that, that word that was part of a set of principles that always seemed pretty weird to me. It didn't really seem to fit with everything because the idea always was to wash yourself clean of everything that's come before so that you can be wholly present for what is right now. And the that got really worked over for me and and has continued to be worked over in the last you know year and four months that's amazing really as i'm listening to this especially that last part about the uh there's a specific word in the yoga traditions for for doing that and i the the first thought that occurred to me was well, I guess if you're from a you know forty five hundred year old tradition, the likelihood of you getting out from under everything that's preceded you is nil. Basically, e- even the practice of trying to do so would be a traditional practice, steeped in tradition and and informed by everything that had preceded you, in terms of the practitioners and so on. But you know, we're talking about Anglo North America here, where you know, 45 years is a friggin' eternity. And I, we can't afford to get out from under what's preceded us, is, is how I would come to that. 
And that, that's prompted by what Kimberly said. I, it hadn't really occurred to me before, but, but uh, you know, our poverty is, is not ancient. That's our poverty, is that we don't have enough to get out from under, to signal to us that we're getting on with things and that our own true selves, you know, have, still have a shot. We, uh, we're too young. I don't even know if that plays well, that notion that it's possible for a collection of humans to be in the world at the same time and be drastically different ages culturally, even though they're all clock in at 42 or 65 of their own personal years. So, yeah, I, rem I remember what Kimberly's describing, of course, much differently because uh, I, I was living through the pandemic on the farm. And what that meant for us was, aside from the odd distressing piece of news, our lives, as we lived them day in and day out, were virtually identical to the pre-shutdown days. We were already, what were they calling it? Uh, socially distanced. And uh, aside from the odd trip to the bank where you forgot to you know, wash your hands and then you regretted it in the lineup, that sort of thing. Aside from that, we, um, it was business as usual with the animals and all the rest. And I, so I didn't have a sense of things uh, corroding or, or disentangling or, or you know, things coming to some drastic fruition. I had a sense that, um, that the, the COVID and the reactivity to it were fulfilling the, the artist's function, frankly which is to refract what's, the, what's invisible and make it um, accessible and uh, in some fashion make it uh, a kind of literacy. And that's what I think the COVID did in real time as it was happening. It made our, dilemma, our cultural dilemmas uh, explicit for those who were, you know, cared to read them and learn them. And so I didn't have a sense of devastation in the same fashion. I had a sense of, of grim affirmation. <laughs> so, so that's our meeting was, was people coming not from the same side of any particular fence or thought pattern. And, uh, and the meetings from that point of view seems extremely unlikely. And, um, but it's very uh, encouraging for me to hear this account this far down the line because uh you know i had i didn't i didn't know what was at stake i didn't know kimberly at all at the time and so i didn't have a sense of of what was um um up for grabs either personally for her or sort of dynamically in terms of her her work uh, her employment her self-employment and all of those things and as it became apparent, I mean, this is an old joke now between us, if we've been around long enough together to have old jokes, but I think this is one, is that she is clearly a master of what we've called the long pause. I'm, on the other hand, am no good at it whatsoever. So it was very unnerving that she would sit there for what felt in real time like hours of, <laughs> of dead air. And I wasn't sure, I didn't have my glasses on. And we did have the video part of things going. So I didn't know if we were okay. I didn't know if we'd drop the signal. I, I didn't know what it meant, you know. And if I had my glasses on, I would have seen that there was um, an ongoing element of, I'm, not, I'm still not persuaded it was distress. I think it was, um, I mean, the way Kimberly's just described it now is very close to the bone of, of the sense I had of what was going on, that there was a kind of, unraveling that wasn't um, a personality issue it was a, a psychic and spiritual and cultural issue so I, I you know I was allowed in after the fact and the realization that she had been in some form or other weeping the entire time but I'm so obviously such a sensitive guy that I didn't pick up on it <laughs> at all and I didn't have my glasses <laughs> with, so I, didn't see, I didn't see her face and uh <laughs> I just, at some point, it was only afterwards that I realized that that was the case. And I thought to myself, well, I, I probably haven't, you know, scored any points with uh, the sensitivity brigade. But, um, you know, to her immense credit, 
this was something that she knew how to do without being in charge of it. And that's a that's an immense capability all unto itself. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, I, I want to ex explore or invite in a question about that capability, Kimberly. You know, um, I, I've had similar experiences with Stephen's work. Um, Listen, you guys just go ahead. I'll, I'll just <laughs> well, so not you, you. You've brought this up many times, Stephen. Not not everybody signs up to put their feet to the fire. Not everybody says, "I just." was unraveled and 24 hours later, which is when your next set of podcast, your next podcast was right. Kimberly goes back in. Um, back in and yeah. you both go back in and, and I'm just, I think it would, it would behoove us to know something about that, that impulse that says here, things are, are spiraling open. The certainties are falling away. The dark is coming on. And I want to do it again. Could you tell us a little bit about that, Kimberly? Sure. So uh, want in that phrase is maybe like, I have to do it again. Mm. Uh, but also it's because, I mean, when, how often does someone agree to do that with you or suggest to do it, right? So I, I wrote to Natalie, Stephen's wife, the at the end of the day of the Wednesday that we spoke and just, I said, you know, this, thank you so much for this opportunity. It felt like an invited indictment. Uh, I've been weeping all day. And then Steven wrote back to me right away and said, would you like to do this again tomorrow before okay moves into your spare room? <laughs> and so I'm not sure I can identify what it is that would, but I, there was never 1% of me that thought otherwise, that thought I wouldn't do it. It's because the, you know, someone came up to me after one of these talks that we've done. We've, we've been in about seven cities and uh, a person came up to me and I could tell she was, she was trying to comfort me. She was trying to say to me, you know, you're not always going to be undone like this because even when we're on stage together and we're speaking, I weep a lot and Steven doesn't weep as much as I do. And somehow that bothers some people that I'm allowing that part of my self to be shown. And so she was basically saying to me like, don't worry, I've been where you've been and it's not always going to be like this. And I think what she was saying is like, you're not going to, you're, you're not always going to cry this much. And my feeling is like, I hope that I always cry as much as I do. I hope that I'm never hardened to the beauty that arises in an encounter to the un unveiling of so much of what's already happening all the time in the culture. And is in feel, you know, when you deal with it on the surface and you're, and I have a 15 year old daughter, so it's coming up all the time. Uh, it's, it's actually, it feels somewhat, I wouldn't say gratifying or heartening or anything like that, but it feels like it's meeting that same level. There's a, there is a, a bit of relief in it, even though it's heartbreaking relief. Yeah. Isn't that, a, isn't that a, the finest distinction to make? There's relief, but it's heartbreaking relief. Um, Kimberly knows the phrase I'm about to, to recommend to us all that came to me when I was working in the death trade and then finally trying to come to grips with it via writing uh, Die Wise, where heartbreak was as you'd expect the order of the day or you'd expect it was the order of the day and I'm here to tell you it wasn't so much. Why not? Well, because heartbreak is a skill, that's why. It's not an affliction. It's not something you entirely undergo. You, there's a part of you that volunteers for active duty in the heartbreak trade. And that's what you lead with, right? So uh, I'm not talking about martyrdom here. I'm talking about a skillfulness that's not a secret resistance plan against heartbreak. You know, the, the, the scheme in Anglo-North America for heartbreak is less heart, therefore less brokenness. 
Would it would it be okay, Stephen, if I read a passage of yours from the book? That'd be great. Okay. I'd like to hear how I sound. You sound good. I'm not going to do justice to it, but I'm going to be I'm going to be very happy that I get to read it. Okay. One of the real encounters with heartbreak is the recognition that you, Mister, and I say this to myself, you are more alive now as a consequence of your heartbreak than you ever were when you thought you were doing okay. I mean, this is for me, I'm lucky enough to have seen it over the years, indisputable. You have more of a sense of awakenedness as a consequence of being heartbroken than you ever would as a consequence of being right. Wow. Yeah. Well, amen. Mm-hmm. It's a savage. There's a savagery in the acknowledgement, though. Hey, it's. I think it's, I mean, you read it in a very conciliatory tone. If I was reading that, I would probably sound as argumentative as hell. So, <laughs> so praise God for different voices from the same for the same text, you know. But um, uh, yeah, it, it is. Uh, there's a savagery that's a consequence of even just letting that in as a possibility that being okay is a mollifier it's it has its moments right and it has its place don't get me wrong i'm not talking about living quote on the edge you know like a t-shirt mm-hmm. but um but really there's a cost to equilibrium uh i think and the, the cost is the lack of the capacity for um for the extremities of life to to become less foreign to you and to be able to you know and the lack of your ability to keep them at bay and why would that be considered an ability from where i sit well so many things that have come that have come to me have come to me through the cipher of the death trade hmm. and some people might claim and i would understand if they did that i have such a skewed take on things by virtue of being informed by dying people that um you know, I'm just no good at parties. Well, the, the last part is correct. I am no good at parties, but I'm not sure that's why. I think it's because um, I was I was blessed with a kind of uh, uh, glimpse into what constitutes liminal. And it turns out it's not an attitude. And it turns out it's not temporary. And it turns out you can't really pick and choose from among the attributes of edgedness. And, uh, and they belong, you know, and I'm not sure that everyone is obliged to walk that walk. Uh, certainly not at the same time, and maybe not at all. And maybe what I'm talking about fairly should not be understood to be a democratic obligation or a democratically distributed skill. Maybe it isn't. Maybe it's time we come around to the understanding that's been around so long, but not for us, that equality ain't sameness. That equality is the diffuse dispersion of of kind of psychic and mythic skillfulness, mm-hmm. and uh, it doesn't fall on everyone equally. And it would appear, if that's a natural order of things, and I think it is, then you could do you could do worse than claim that as somehow the intention of the makers of this whole thing. That there are certain times when certain people's skills are called for. And there's certain times when they're, when they're relieved from active duty on firing in all of their particular cylinders. So what's, what's now? What does this time ask? Does it ask the same thing of us all? Clearly not. Does it employ certain skillfulnesses that are available? And could one of them be prophetic? And could one of them be an exemplar to, to the capacity to be an exemplar of a kind of woundedness that's not personal, that doesn't require personal, uh, you know, sorrow befuddlement, that, that, it, that you're the heir to something larger than your own little life. And by which I would say something like this, I think it's possible to have memories of things you have no lived experience of. Mm-hmm. That your, your own personal experience is not the Encyclopedia Britannica of the way it is. It's a small slice. And maybe that's what ancestry is. 
and maybe your capacity to have memories of things includes a kind of um, what the uh, Welsh called the old hurt. You have a way into the old hurt that doesn't require misfortune to visit you in your in your little circumstances. And maybe that's a skillfulness that we can rely upon. And I, I think the the woman who's with us on this call is possessed of that. And that's probably why I've not thought twice about being on the stage with her when I've done that with virtually nobody else. Hmm. Because that skillfulness is not evenly distributed across the, the terrain. And she doesn't seem to be terribly unnerved by her ability to do so. So what can you say but yes? But that's why I feel defensive on her behalf. Or protective, that's a better word. What do you see as the... What's on the offense? I'm sorry, could you ask me that again? Sure, sure. You you ended with saying, I think, Kimberly's ability to to be in what you called the, the old hurt from the Welsh, and then you said something like, that's why I feel defensive on her behalf. Right. And it seemed to call in, then there's, there's something on the offense. Yeah. And I was just curious about that. And I was thinking yeah. about that within the larger context of, I think what you call spirit work, which I'm imagining is the work that you're doing when you're on that stage. Yeah. Well, they eat teachers here, don't they? Mm. Oh, that's the name of one of the chapters in the book. Yeah. I think. Yeah, so this is absolutely accurate. And, you know, cannibalism is a very thinly veiled form of our consumerism. And it, there's no reason to believe it wouldn't manifest as darkly and as adamantly in the so-called psychic trade or the mental health trade or the self-improvement trade. In fact, even more so, probably. So that's one aspect of what's coming, you know, what comes to feed. It's food makes hunger. Mm -hmm. And even though I don't understand either one of us as offering ourselves up for, for delectation, I don't think that's true at all. I don't think we're, we're volunteering for voodoo doll status not in the least. And yet, um, there are people, I've seen it happen already. I've heard it in the tone of voice. Uh, it doesn't come from across all sectors in the uh, audience, it's important to say, but it's very identifiable when it happens. There's a sense that I hear that Kimberly is somehow letting the side down by not appearing to be, quote, the same as me. As if me being me is working out for me. <laughs> Just that's some kind of goofy standard to, that we're all held to. Dry-eyed, even-keeled, which I'm not. But maybe that's the appearance. Is uh, utterly sure of himself or herself. These, what are these indicators of? This is the kind of people you elect to public office every four years, for God's sake. To your immediate chagrin. <sighs> so we're not running for office. So excuse my language, but fuck that noise. Mm -hmm. It's not our job to be all we could be in front of people, you know, in fits and starts for 90 minutes. We have a radically different kind of responsibility that we're executing, that we're, that we're not prosecuting it, we're executing it, we're presenting it. And, uh, you know, I, we have no obligation to reassure people at the end of the 90 minutes that everything's going to be okay. And that's the accusation that comes mm -hmm. in fairly, fairly uh, obtusely comes through the form of this pseudo encouragement stuff. Like yeah. as if she couldn't come up with that on her own. Mm -hmm. as, she, as if she's got no capacity for self-soothing. You know, the whole thing is insulting. Yeah. One of the things that became very clear to me over this period of time, and it came from talking about the big heartbreaks 
of this time that come to the surface most frequently, which are uh, the environment, global warming, uh, artificial intelligence, you know, technology and nature. Uh, I would say different versions of inequalities, whether those are gender or sex-based or race-related and and then it, it, when we were first talking, it was right in the what we could now call maybe the middle of the pandemic, but we didn't really know at the time where we were at in that process because we're living it in real time. So we don't know how much time is left and how far into it we are. And at one point, Stephen Jenkinson said, you know, we have a bigger we can't solve these problems that, that some of them, we certainly have the technology in order to be able to address, but it's because there's the bigger problem. That's, that means that's the bigger epidemic, which is individualism. And there's just really no, uh, there's no surprise that the most individualist country in the world is also the one that's got the biggest problem with identity politics. And that just kind of becomes the one lens that people view everything from. It's all they can see. Uh, And I won't even say they, I'll say myself as well too. And that also informs my heartbreak when, when I'm noticing in real time the programming come up that doesn't allow me to see the full spectrum or, or the full prism of what's happening and has those feelings like this, you're not allowed to say that, or you can't say that, or I know how that's going to be viewed, not just with Stephen Jenkinson, but with other people as well. And so, of course, that's what we're up against when we're on a stage and I'm, you know, a younger woman, not so young, and Stephen's an older man, not so old. Uh, We've both talked about how it would be completely different if Stephen Jenkinson was of a different skin color, a different racial identity. People wouldn't have questioned at all my desire to collaborate. And not only that, but people seem to be concerned for me about whether I'm going to lose myself, whether I'm going to somehow, you know, forget that about what I care about because... I suddenly only care about other things as if also that the conversation that he and I have at times are the only conversations that we ever have, right? That we, I mean, I, I have other bodies of work besides what he and I engage about. He has other bodies of work and interests that we don't particularly engage about. Uh, But the expectation for, for very simple things for instance, that we would have the same amount of time that we're talking, like as if there's a timer and the only thing that makes it equitable or uh, real is if we talk exactly the same amount of time. It's no surprise. A lot of people come to these talks with heartbreak and grief and questions related to death because Die Wise was Stephen's not his first book, but one of the ones that that he's known for. So a lot of people come for that. I don't need to take questions on death. I've been I've only seen two people die in my entire life. So it doesn't make sense for me to try to weigh in just so that I can somehow feel that I'm or or not even feel, but just present to other people that we're being equitable. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off i think there's this this question that you're both bringing up is to to what or to whom are we responsible and for whom and to whom do we speak and i'm thinking i saw i saw steven's performance in cincinnati and uh and it just begins in a way that I think it's singular, maybe in a way that's an indictment on our culture, um, that, that it begins not for us in the audience. It begins with an awareness of and an evocation of the gods and the ancestors. And then I wish I could quote it, um, and I'm sure Stephen can, but you, then we're on the dark road heading out of town and and the obligations or the responsiveness is to to death and to the ancestors and to the gods and to life um but as i i was watching the show it it wasn't to me and my little self that's not what it was about Yeah, you got it right. It's pretty good memory. It actually starts off, uh, so you've heard this, I've heard it too. Summoned or not, they say the gods will be present. Maybe, I say. Sounds like bad luck. It's got to be bad manners and nobody knows. So, welcome friends, for friends we may soon be. Friends are forged on that dark road. The one that's heading out of town. And you know it now. We're headed there. Not one of those words is directed to anybody who's in the theater. I mean, in, in the sense that we were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, I, I, I mean, you, man, you're pretty good at this, if you don't mind me saying. Um, this is going places that we've never been invited to go. Um, so you've noticed something really important that uh, from my point of view in the, in the uh, grief and mystery uh, project, um, we've had enough of, we've got a track record of going it alone. We've got a track record of spiritual heroism and individual Haley's Comet um, imitation and all the rest uh, of all the withdrawing instincts and the personal truth instincts and all of that stuff. I mean, you know, get more information if you want, but I think, I think the, the stuff, the information's in. And here we are. And we don't even know what to do about being sick. Being sick becomes the most divisive thing of the last three or four years. It's just mm-hmm. makes you shake your head. Mm-hmm. So could we use a little help here? And is it possible that the rumors of our individualism are greatly exaggerated? (laughs) It's just the point I'm making, right? And I'm not using, quote unquote, the gods or, quote unquote, the ancestors as some kind of cipher or some kind of metaphor just to enact the the unnerving of the individual uh, in the crowd, not in the least. I'm talking to these, these ones. I'm pleading with them. We could use a little help here. It's, v- it's a very old-fashioned thing to do. It's so old-fashioned that people keep wondering what kind of genre I've invented. You know, from the guys at, at Border and what do, you, what do you call in this country? Homeland Security on down. They all want to know, where does this come from? And I say, it's so old, we can't remember it. We can't remember the act of anybody looking like me addressing the dead in the present tense. 
It sounds like Ouija board stuff. You're waiting for it to be over, you know, so we can get back to rationality <laughs> and our contemporary problems. I'm getting back to them when I address our circumstance as if we're not alone. You had said but our one... companionship is kind of unnerving, isn't it? We're not the best companions to have in a crisis, are we? No, I think we can pretty much count on ourselves to fuck it off if the recent historical record is any indication. So there's work to do. Spirit work, as you as you kindly noted in the last question, you know we're 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 clearly children of a of a troubled time, and our troubles are. I don't know if they're unique. I doubt very much that they're unique. I mean, the world has ended. Civilization, as we know it, has ended a good handful of times, you know, uh, over the years, and it may be ending again. This one will be particularly messy. I don't think there's any doubt. But uh, and some people are thinking the sooner the better, and uh, maybe the best thing to do would be hasten the demise of the current regime. That is euthanasia at the cultural level, mm. right? These things, I mean, I saw dying. I know what dying is. I mean, nobody can tell me about it. Sorry. That's just, that's fact. And one of the things I saw is if you weigh in for any number of allegedly principled reasons, for example, like you've had enough and you can't do it anymore, that uh, it's unbecoming, that it's not bringing out the best in you, that nobody should have to suffer like this, and on and on and friggin' on. And then you extrapolate the exact same thinking to the level of culture. Where do you think you're going to end up? Hmm. Does it sound a little cleansing to you, maybe? Hmm. A little sort of final solution-ish, does hmm. it? I mean, that's an odious phrase. We all know that it is. But doesn't it? I mean, doesn't it? It does to me. Mm -hmm. We don't have an understanding of what's gone haywire. And that should be the thing that informs our understanding of how it might be otherwise. We lead with how it might be otherwise. Well, where do you think the solutions come from? They, they uniformly come from never having seen it otherwise. That's who we stand in front of, too when we do what we do, Kimberly and I. That's, the, that's the, what's at play. Tell us what to do is the most benign form that it takes, and it just gets worse from there. I would suspect that, that if you all are standing in front of people, giving them even a, a whiff of otherwise, that's not that's not always going to be met with gratitude that's going to be i think you're going to see some growls now you tell us man <laughs> yeah yeah look we're grown-ups right yeah. it's an important acknowledgement to make too and this is not me in any way complaining or saying it should be otherwise these these are absolutely vapor trails across the common sky of our days what we're talking about now they're the chemtrails of the way it is right okay so so we have work to do and i i if i could use the word blessing here to describe it i understand what we're doing as enacting the blessing that has come to us if we each in our own fashion have skillfulness in terms of the language available to us and the marshalling of the words and our education and so on and the experiences that have been brought to bear upon us and so on, then it's a celebratory act to do what we do. And I believe that element is there absolutely. You know, the, the, the subject matter is one thing. I'll, I'll give you a, a, a brief example. Uh, love doesn't come out much. You know, you could be a little more positive in this regard. Well, maybe as a discrete subject, maybe it doesn't. Maybe we don't, we don't sound like top 40 radio when we do what we do. 
Maybe love is an animating principle of what we do without becoming a discrete subject, you know, to the exclusion of other subjects. Maybe we proceed lovingly. And love is not the principal, you know, gem in the bracelet we're trying to craft. Yeah, it's the form that motivates the content. It's why we're up there, among other reasons. And we have kids, you know, and that's another reason why. And uh, and we've been granted a certain kind of privilege, if that's not a, just the most grievous of words anymore. But it's a legitimate privilege to have. And I know that we're lucky to have it. And I know that the moment will will pass. So, you know, for now, it seems that we have obligations that are that disturb the the status quo, but it's it's a kind of uh, divine disturbance. That's the way it strikes me. Mm-hmm. That the moment is now. The troubles are upon us, and uh, for the moment, uh, what we've been granted in the mo- in our lives prior to this time is available to us in real time. So that used to be called prophecy, among other things. One of the the things that you remind us of in the book is that. If you look in, inside blessing or you look at the the etymology of it, there's blood. Um, that it's not it's not a entirely benign undertaking. And I was, as I was listening, so I, I had the chance to both read the book and then listen to the exchanges um, on which the the book is based, and uh, and I had a little bit different experience, Stephen. I I could pick up on the fact that Kimberly was crying, and I knew that because there were moments where where I was crying with her. Um and uh and I'm I just am curious how this sounds to you all. You know, one of the things that I have a deep admiration for about about Stephen's work is the eloquence with which he brings to the questions at hand and the wonderings at hand and the the lucidity of which I've been a great beneficiary, um, really kind of a sanity-saving beneficiary. Um, and, and then hearing you two collaborating, it, as I say it out loud, I think I'm going to get a, a yes, but... A, Simply that that Kimberly's ability to be up there and to show that part of herself that's willing to weep is also a skill and an offering and a glimpse of otherwise. And that, that perhaps some of the power of the collaboration is that you have these these twin engines up there shaking up the the way it, the way we believe it to be in service of the way it is you recognize yourself in that Kimberly what do you think well that last phrase rings true uh, the way it is and how many ways right now it feels like we're wrestling with reality. You know, it's, of course you have, if you have two, two of anything, there's the impulse to compare them and to put them up against one another but I like to imagine that there's other ways for two things to be together without having to have them be compared. And I guess that's a little bit about what I was saying earlier about um, measuring out time or measuring out contribution in those ways. And, and I do, I do also, even though it's 
the two of us on stage, we are in a room with other folks. We weren't when we were doing the original two podcasts, but then we were online for the five conversations and now we've been in person. So there are other people in human form and then there are there are other things that are happening and they're moving through us and at least they're they're I'm aware of them. Most people do tell me they what they thank me for is my vulnerability. I don't feel that I'm trying to be vulnerable, so I think it's okay to recognize people for what their natural gifts are or uh, and so I don't mind being thanked for my vulnerability. I've sort of come to see it as because I laugh so uninhibitedly and I also cry. But again, I don't try to do either of those things. Sometimes actually we'll be starting and we'll be talking and we'll talk for 10 or 15 minutes. And then I think to myself, oh, are the tears finished? Like, am I too familiar now that the tears won't come anymore? And, And then something happens and then they come and as I said earlier, I I will be worried about myself when I'm somehow bulletproofed against Mm. the reality of, of the times that we're in. And in the fact that I could perhaps help might be the right, the wrong word, but what I do, I do know, and and I, and since I've been working with Stephen Jenkinson, I really try as hard as I can not to refer to other cultures. I do speak Portuguese and I speak some Sanskrit, and but I really try to stick with English and stick to my own cultural reference points. So I don't know in the history of my ancestors if what this practice would be, and I could look into it more. But I do know in some cultures, there's the people that come in that are the wailers or the criers, and they come in at times of grief and they help that process be set in motion by their living example for the people that have been hardened by life and by death and uh, all the things that we go through as humans. So for me, that's an honor that something that flows through me uh, without, it doesn't take anything from me. That's, that's why it gives, it adds something through, and Stephen Jenkinson talks a lot about diminishment mm. and diminishment over one's lives. But I'm, I'm not at all uh, weakened by my laughing or crying. Uh, I'm actually the things that are important are potentiated through that process. So I don't, I mean, you know, I do the kind of work I do. I do internal pelvic floor work and I help women heal from birth injuries and gynecological surgeries and different kinds of sexual trauma. And that work is in some ways requires the same thing. It's not fun. It's not, um, you know, I'm not like rearing to go to get my hands in there. It's a, it's a specific kind of duty and function to be present with the things that are seen and unseen and to be able to really listen keenly to it. But, but as Stephen was saying that just because it, just because it may elicit something doesn't, doesn't, the, the bristling nature of what it could elicit or the darkness that doesn't somehow mean that it doesn't still feel like something that's an honor. And, and there's, for me, there's nothing negative in it. Like I'm not, it's not a problem to solve. And I guess it's just unusual and especially unusual because people would expect, you know, if I was sitting in a women's circle, then people would maybe expect someone to be crying. If I was, um, maybe even sitting on stage with another woman crying, that might be, interpreted differently but the fact that I'm with somebody who is extremely eloquent 
who has a lot more time in doing, you know, I haven't been on stages. We, we did a stage with 325 people. The only time in my life I've been on a stage like that was when I was like in my 20s, I was in a dance performance one time at the Kennedy Center. So this, that format isn't, I'm, the, I'm not as experienced there. So I think people assume that therefore I would adopt the attitude or, or what's recognizable in terms of power and like that I would somehow adopt this other way of being that's just not my way. And, and also it's not true to say that Stephen Jenkinson isn't also emotional, isn't also undone, isn't also being moved by what's happening. It's just that it's more visibly recognizable and it's interpreted as weakness, uh, which I think is then why people feel they want to congratulate me or console me or, you know, that's the noticeable feature. It sounds like when, when people appreciate you for being quote unquote vulnerable, that might be a mislabeling of something much more important. And maybe the mislabeling comes from a limited understanding or a, a regard for like the individual and not quite seeing the range of, of what's happening. And, and that's the word they reach for, which feels like a different kind of diminishment. To go on a, on a wire here, um, this has been fantastic for me to listen to, I should say. Uh, David Bowie, towards the end of his life, uh, was reflecting on his career in an interview. And he said, you know, the, the only serious mistake I ever made, but it was a serious one, was listening to my audience. Now, that could be very offending, right? And if you think you're the one that put him in the silver palace, then you could take personal umbrage at the whole notion. What he was saying, of course, was that if I listened to the audience, every record would be Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. That's what it would be. So who's deserved most? No, that's not a word. Who's unserved most by giving the people what they want? My answer would be the people. Mm. And so, you know, to her immense credit, the woman you were just listening to doesn't do that, at least not in my presence, not when I've been around her. Maybe she does in her off hours, but I'd be, I doubt it. No, she has different abilities, you see. They're not on a, on a scale. It's not a scale from vulnerable to ironclad. That's just, that's just a complete misapprehension of what humans are capable of. You know, it's, it's more musical. It's not linear that way at all. She's capable of, of uh, an, oct an emotional octave range that's, uh, that, from a demonstrative point of view, that's uncommon. Why is uncommon so disarming to people who can't do it themselves? Where, how did we learn that the only way we're able to be grateful for something is the degree to which it benefits us personally, directly, and immediately? But we can't be grateful for anything that's in the world that doesn't seem to have anything to do with us. Like that just throws us completely. Hmm. So one of the things that I get to practice by being on the stage with her or in this interview now as I get to be grateful for something that's not mine. What a thing. Mm -hmm. You see. So that's what I'm recommending to others. Be grateful for stuff that's not yours and never will be yours. Not supposed to be yours. You're not supposed to be able to do everything. You know, take it easy. I'm I'm following Kimberly. I just want to leave space for that. Oh, great! Two of you now. <laughs> <laughs> We're at an hour. I want to. I want to ask one more question because I'm not going to be able to be there. Um, you all have this 
this teaching gig ahead of you, I'm just curious as to to what what terrain of your collaboration is lighting up as you move toward it. Um, you know, I saw over the book the evolution of of what I think was a relationship coming into being, um, one for which I'm I'm grateful and and benefit, um, and so here it is. There's this this event in the future um, where I I suspect something really worthwhile is going to happen, and I'm just curious what you all suspect. Well, I don't know exactly what to suspect, but I'm really looking forward to it. And when we do these evenings, you know, a lot of what Stephen teaches about, for example, uh, phenomenology, the, the how time works, or, you know, the unauthorized version of the history of North America these are all underpinnings of the teachings and what happens. And so when you're new to it, every single phrase, you know, is something that you kind of don't understand and, or maybe don't understand at all. And then you're on to another one that seems like it's the caveat before you get to the thing or the preamble. And you, you're already tossed in the washing machine before you get, get to the thing that you thought you were trying to get to or thought he was trying to get to. So when we have more time, we really have, you know, more space to lay out what are some of these foundations and we can go deeper into the wondering. So rather than what we've been doing, you know, in the book, I was just asking Stephen questions. Then at the end of the book, we write letters to one another and then in these book readings or reckoning lives, we've been asking questions to one another. Now we'll have a chance to respond to each other's wonderings. So it'll have even more depth of conversation and probably respond to people's questions in the audience so that, you know, there's just, there's so many layers and so many, ways that personal experiences weave in and out and so it, it's just going to be give us so much more room and also a lot of people say after the talks that they're very intrigued and it just gives people more a chance to just be with it more the uh, the format that we've employed so far as you heard is that one of us will ask the other a question. You, sometimes there's a setup. It's just not. It's just a question out of the gate. There's a contextualizing for it, and then there's a... And so the, 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 it, it invites soliloquy, obviously. And I think we're, we have some skillfulness, so it's not self-indulgent. But that has been the format up to now. But if we're with people for two and a half, three hours plus, it won't be like that at all. I, I see this as something that invites the old style alchemy of people murmuring together the way and imitating the sound that river water over stones makes. <laughs> that there are no um, categorical swashbuckling declarations. You know? Well, there might be. There might, but, but that won't be the order of the day. The order of the day will be uh, a mindfulness to the to the particular configurations that have uh, that are in the room now including us so we'll get to do things on account of and for the sake of each other that the current circumstance just hasn't had room for it's not a problem it's another opportunity and uh, i think we'll find something together that we haven't found that the question and answer format um, precluded 
So like like Kimberly, I'm yeah very much looking forward to it. And if you had asked me a year ago, so how do you think that's going to go? I would I probably would have said, oh man, probably not a good idea. Largely because I'm not a guy that has historically been been you know plays in the sandbox well. Because why? Not because it's my personality. Maybe it's become so, but it's because my sense of what's at stake, what the what the stakes are my sense of urgency about them is so uh, ratcheted as a consequence of the current regime uh, that, uh, you know, I serve that first. And the notion of process is never something that is very compelling to me anymore. And so, you know, process is the, is the most obvious default place that two people go, so, you know, as to, quote, make something work. But I think we have other abilities. So I don't think we'll be ongoingly reflecting upon ourselves or each other or how I feel in this moment or, you know, having a breakout session. Oh, God, help us. Or any of that kind of stuff. Journaling to the trees, you know, it's not going to happen. It's uh, we don't have much time together. And, uh, you know, I'm at a different place in my life, very likely than Kimberly is. So my sense of urgency eclipses my sense of agency by a, a high degree. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. I want to, I want to end by picking up that note. Um, I don't know if Stephen will recall this or not, but in, in previous conversations we've had, I've let him know that, that it was getting cancer that led him to, that led me to his work. Um, and, and the sense of urgency and undoneness that came with that and the gift of lucidity that, his work has given me. Um, and so I am, you know, acutely aware that, that there's an ending here and this may be our shot at it, our chance to talk. And, uh, so I want to thank you both for the work you've done and for the example you're putting out there, the possibility of otherwise. Thank you both for being on the new books network. Thank you so much, Eric. That's been a real pleasure. Yeah, it's it's great to be educated by somebody who's asking you something. That's very kind. <laughs> okay, till next time. My name is Eric LeMay, and you have been listening to an interview with Kimberly Johnson and Stephen Jenkinson about their book, Reckoning, here on the New Books Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.